Welcome to C3. Hey, it's good to see you. So today is part two. So if you missed part one, leave, go listen to it, and then... <laughs> part, part two of um, the question around the masculine and the feminine. So we're in a series called The Great Questions, and I want to try to uh, approach the question of what do we mean by masculine? What do we mean by feminine? What are these energies or patterns, and how do they show up, and do we need them? And, and my guess was, if we talk about this, it will, um, we'll know if it's one of the great questions if it's activating. And uh, it was indeed activating last week. And Talkback was a very lively uh, discussion, and more than three of you said, hey, you should do part two. So don't blame me, blame them. <laughs> So that's what I'm going to try to do. Our, we were scratching the surface of around questions of masculine and feminine last week, and I'm going to really do the same thing today. I just want to take the discussion a little further. So just a very, very tiny recap of just one of the things I tried to emphasize last, last week, which was um, masculine and feminine, as the way I'm using them now, are archetypes. They're patterns. They're energies. They're constellating patterns that show up. And they are separate from, to a certain extent, gender. And one of the things I tried to say last week, and this really comes from depth psychology, is the psyche itself contains both masculine and feminine. The archetypes, the patterns. And there's something about the dance and the tension between these poles that is the very essence of, of life and vitality, vitality and energy and conflict and change and transformation, and it's a little like the yin and the yang symbol itself, and which also has a masculine and feminine dimension uh, to it, of course. Um, but anyway, my point was that masculine and feminine, the way I'm using them, are archetypal realities, patterns, and they tend to show up, and they tend to manifest themselves in certain ways. And anyway, you can re-listen to, to last week's talk, but I wanted to at least begin by saying that's partly where I'm coming from. In this, in this discussion. And so today I have one, two, three, six points. Okay, I have six points. We'll see if we can get through all six. And I wanted to begin, point number one is just to have a very brief discussion about the Bible and about Plato. Because uh, what's true about all sort of religions, spiritualities, uh, worldviews, you could even say, is that there's some way of addressing what is masculine? What is feminine? What are these poles? What stories, legends, um, songs, fairy tales help us come into relationship with these realities, these archetypal realities? And also, how are those archetypal realities related to gender? That's part of what the great stories sort of evoke and poke at and point at. And I wanted to start with the Bible, because that, of course, is my area of expertise. Um, expertise, you know use quotation marks here. Um, it's certainly my, all, my area of training. Now, what could be said about the Bible? So the first thing I want to point out is something very fascinating in Genesis chapter 1. So there are really two creation stories if you're very familiar with the Bible, Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. Chapter 1 refers to Elohim, that's the God's name, and in chapter 2 it's Elohim Yahweh, and the stories are kind of quite different and at a certain point, it appears that an editor or editors kind of put them together, but didn't exactly create a, a seamless transition. It's sort of like, here's one version, 
and here's another version, and that's pretty interesting in and of itself. Anyway, Genesis chapter 1 is about Elohim, and, and here's the phrase um, translated. It is, in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. How many have heard that particular line? Right? It's, it's very poetic, actually, in Hebrew. It's kind of a, um, it doesn't rhyme exactly, but has sort of like these, this poetic quality. So, in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them in the image of God. So, very interesting. So, what is this poem, this story trying to evoke? And I want to say something as clearly as I can that's actually quite profound. Because remember, this is a very old document. At a minimum, it's, well, depending on <laughs> scholarship here, 2,500 years old, 3,000 years old. But that's just how old it is as a document. These stories are much, much older. Both creation stories are much, much older. So what's it trying to say? One kind of amazing and I think clear thing it's trying to say is if you want to imagine God, imagine male and female. Because in the image of God, he created them male and female. So whatever we think about a, the God as totality, as reality, something like that, involves male and female. So you want to come to know God, who do you need to come to know? Masculine, feminine, male, female. That, that, that is a kind of totality, not one or the other. Does that make sense? And that's actually quite surprising and, um, and actually quite ignored if we look at the history of Christianity or religion in, in, in a more broad sense or even of Judaism. But it's a surprising little uh, clue about the terrain that we're talking about. Now, uh, the rabbis took it a little bit further. So there's a medieval rabbinic commentary that goes something like this. In, in, so in Genesis chapter 2, and I'm, I don't want to get too in the weeds here, but just go with me for the drive through version. Adam is not Adam. It's not someone's name in the Bible. Like, And I now name you Adam. Adam means something like earth. It's the same word for the color red, more or less, or clay, and it means something like humanity. Adam means humanity. It doesn't mean the guy Adam. Does that make sense? It's not until the creation of Eve that you get Adam and Eve as names, and that's actually in the Hebrew itself. It switches. Okay, now we're talking about personalities, people, Adam and Eve, male and female. But the rabbis say something amazing, that um, in Hebrew, it'll be translated in, the, in, in your Bible most of the time that when God went to create Eve, he put Adam into a deep sleep and then took from Adam's, or took what from Adam? You tell me. Oh, a rib, of course. Okay. But Hebrew is what's called a poor language, that um, uh, one word can mean about five different things. Arabic is even crazier. It's like one word can mean ten different things. So anyway, in Hebrew, it, the more direct translation is that, that God took from Adam's side. But that sounds weird in English, because it's like, well, side, well, let's just say rib, okay? Because that's part of the side. It gives it a more like concrete, visceral translation, but it means side. So what the rabbi said is when, when God was dealing with Adam, it was one being, both male and female, both masculine both feminine, both energies, 
a kind of an androgynous wholeness. And that wasn't satisfactory in some way. So what God did is split Adam, Adam, humanity, right down the middle. And thus separation. And then the creation of masculine and feminine, male and female. Have I made sense? Now, what does this explain? Like, well, symbolically, it starts to explain things like attraction and repulsion and, and what's going on when, you know, when you're 15 years old, you know? That kind of fiery dynamic of poles and of opposites. It's saying, okay, when the opposites come together, there's a kind of completeness, which is an image of God. When they're separated, there's the tension. It's trying to dig around in these kind of psychological and spiritual realities. Have I made sense? Plato said the same thing. So it's not just from the Bible. So in Plato's allegory, he says basically the same thing, that when the gods created humanity, um, split right down the middle. Almost the exact same image from, from Genesis. All right, so what's my point in going over that? My point is just the, to emphasize, when we say humanity, we mean all of humanity. And we mean the archetypal realities. We need the masculine, we need the feminine. That's what I was trying to say last week. Like, all right, so you're against the patriarchy. All right, fine, all right. But what about what's sacred with the masculine? What's about what's sacred with the feminine? What qualities, what potentialities? Why do we need them? Why do we need the dance between opposites? Why do we need these poles? And to elevate, and somehow, I was trying, one of my points last week was, a more egalitarian vision, at least in my opinion, involves a celebration of differences and the tensions between those differences. And all I'm saying is the Bible was digging around in some of the same territory. And that has helped shaped our understanding of, of, um, of what it means to be human. Now, here's something interesting about Christianity and Judaism or the Judeo-Christian tradition. If it's true what I'm saying that the image of God is masculine and feminine, what's the next question? Something like, or next wondering you could say is, well, how come when we imagine God, at least for much of human history, we, we imagined a male? <laughs> so you're like, wait a minute. So the image of God is masculine and feminine in humanity, but when we turn to the heavens, we're like, huh, what's going on here? So here's something that Jung said about, about Christianity. He said, the interesting thing is that the feminine is suspiciously absent from the upper parliament. <laughs> that was his way of saying, hey, where's the feminine when it comes to, to, to the Bible and to the divine and to Christianity and, and Judaism in turn? It's there. I want to say that it's there. It's just a little more hidden. Some of it is just in the language itself because uh, Hebrew is a gendered language, for example. So it's there in kind of more hidden realms. Um, and it's there in books, in books like Proverbs. Um, you know, Proverbs, people typically think about having wise sayings, but there's a whole section in there that's, that's dedicated to Sophia, to wisdom. And this was the Hebrew Bible's version of the feminine side of God because it says Yahweh consults Sophia in the heavens in order to create the rest of the universe. That's a bringing together of masculine and feminine. Can you feel that? So consulting wisdom in order to create. And those were some of the archetypal qualities I said last week, because masculine archetypally is about um, how to do things and is about um, aim and orientation and logos, and the feminine is much more about meaning and receptivity and uh, you know, um, 
the what of something, not just the how. And so that's wisdom, Sophia, and Yahweh sort of coming together. And, and you do have that eventually in Christianity too. Almost right away in early Christianity, you have whole sections around the world in different languages elevating Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus. Why? It's because of this balance. It's because of this sort of unconscious desire to include both. Does it make sense? In fact, one of the, one of the things that, that Jung said about the assumption of Mary, so Mary joined the upper parliament in Catholic um, doctrine in the 1950s, I think, with the doctrine of the assumption of Mary, and Jung said now she's joined the upper parliament, and there's a, more of a balance of masculine and feminine, and that's, that's growth. Now, you can look back and say, oh, they tried to cut out the feminine. Okay, this is just what happens sometimes. Have you ever been married or been in an intimate relationship? Are there tensions? I mean, not in mine, but prob prob probably in yours. You know, of course, that's just the way it is. There's a kind of wrestling match that's taking place, and that's happening on, sort of on the institutional level. So I just wanted to give you a little bit of sort of backdrop um, in that realm. So this leads me to a certain image, which is called... In Greek, the hieros gamos. Anybody heard that fancy word before? It means sacred marriage. And it, it's true in, um, in, in certain Greek uh, religious uh, cultures. You could also say it's true in all religious cultures that the possibility of sacred union is what religion is promising. So we come into this world, we feel separated in some way, and we want to feel more whole or more unified. And religions in general are offering various ways of bringing these things two together, these things together, which is called the hieros gamos. That's the Greek word for it, the sacred marriage. Now, what qualifies as sacred marriage? Well, the combination of uh, humanity and the divine, that's an example of sacred marriage, uh, between human beings and the natural world can be an example of sacred marriage, and of course, the masculine and feminine, that the bringing together of these things is actually sacred terrain. And the, there's kind of a double-sided way that you can look at this. Actual marriages, actual relationships, is some way pointing at this greater mystery, the reunification of Adam and Eve, or in Plato's allegory of male and female, or masculine and feminine. There's something sacred. There's a sacred possibility here. And almost all cultures, at least I say almost because I'm not like, you know, I don't know all cultures, all right? All the ones that I know of at least have some expression of this, that it's, we're dealing with something sacred here, not just something profane. It's not just for, like, um, what would be a more cynical view, uh, Evolution taxes. <laughs> it's not just for taxes or just for pure biology, propagation of the species, but there's actually something more interesting and divine and sacred taking place with the bringing together of the masculine and feminine. Okay? And from a psychological point of view, and this is straight from Jung, he says, and your psyche as an individual also has the possibility of the hieros gamos a bringing together of your own masculine and feminine qualities. And you'll be a more whole person if you're able to do that. That's the basic argument. So that's, I want to just plant as a seed in the background of some things I want to say now. So I want to talk about uh, 
falling in love, all right? Because it's so easy to talk about, you know? And I want to ask questions about, all right, what happens when we fall in love? And what sorts of things are, are being sort of dragged up? And what possibilities are, are arising in kind of the, the fiery and awkward terrain of falling in love? So I want to backtrack just a little bit and look at your, um, whatever you call this thing, bulletin. Bulletin sounds fancy. And I want to read this poem. This poem I had last week. And we're going to return to the scene of the crime of childhood here. Because mostly what I want to say is kind of coming up out of sort of our, our childhood reality. Let's look at this beautiful poem by Annie Sexton here. They sit in a row outside the kindergarten, black, red, brown, all with those brass buckles. Remember when you couldn't buckle your own overshoe or tie your own overshoe or tie your own shoe? Just pause for a minute. Just try to feel that. You remember when you couldn't do that? Like, yeah. Couldn't tie your own shoe and, or cut your own meat and the tears running down like mud because you fell off your tricycle. She's really exploring a kind of precious innocence here and vulnerability, you could say. Remember, big fish, when you couldn't swim, you simply slipped under like a stone frog. The world wasn't yours. It belonged to the big people. They must have the answers, I'm interpreting. The big people must know what's going on, because I certainly don't know what's going on. Then you grow up and you become big and you realize, okay, the big people don't know what's going on. She continues, under your bed sat the wolf, and he made a shadow when cars passed by at night. They made you give up your nightlight and your teddy and your thumb. I'm interpreting they kicked you out of Eden. Oh, overshoes, don't you remember me pushing you up and down in the winter snow? Oh, thumb, I want a drink. It is dark. Where are the big people? When will I get there? Taking giant steps all day, each day, and thinking nothing of it. Can you feel like the vulnerability here of just vulnerability and innocence of a certain age? Can you feel your own vulnerability and innocence? It's like, what is time to the psyche, really? One moment we're this age, we're five years old, and the next moment we're our present selves. Like, you feel these moments when maybe you can't tie your shoes now, you know? <laughs> You're like, <laughs> I don't know. There's something like, Okay, so what's my point here? Just to hang out in this kind of vulnerable terrain because what I'd like to suggest is that this precious innocence is where we begin to first form our relationship with things like masculine and feminine. Not only in terms of natural disposition, I said this last week, like I tried to be uh, quite clear that you can be a male, for example, and have a more feminine disposition. 
orientation. That can be your primary way of orienting in the world. It's not the only way because psyche is both masculine and feminine. So anyway, it's, or, and then the other way around. But in, in the innocence of childhood, you are coming into contact with your just natural dispositions. What's your innocent way of showing up and relating to the world? And then it's also a time of exploration and imagination where there's like role playing. Who am I? And what's it like to be a big person? or another person, or an animal. I like, to pre- I like to pretend I was an animal when I was a kid, all right? It's just like, what is this? And what's my, what's my natural way of feeling into the world? And it's also the age where we're starting to collect information about the big people and the big world and what they're up to. And something like our earliest world construction is taking place. What is masculine? What is feminine? What is father? What is mother? Is father and mother, are they safe? In other words, the masculine and the feminine and those archetypal qualities, is it safe to move around in here, to be close to these realities? Is it not safe? So the, when we begin to wonder about what about masculine, what about feminine, there's it's unavoidable that you have to return in some sense to the scene of the crime, meaning childhood. What formed me? What was my natural disposition and what formed me? And what informed me as I was developing? Have I made sense? I mean, it's not that, it's not that complex, but... Um, okay, which brings up the question of falling in love. Then what begins to happen? And I want to describe a, uh, an idea here that I got from the psychologist James Hollis. And he calls it two things, the Eden Project and the Magical Other. That one of the unavoidable things that happens in this innocent terrain that we just read about in this beautiful poem is that something of an amalgam is formed in our developing psyches about the ultimate mother, the ultimate father, the ultimate partner, the ultimate masculine, the ultimate feminine, that something of that begins to form and be shaped in our early childhood experience. And when we start to fall in love, we start recreating the scene of the crime. So an example of this, he says, (laughs) all right, so let's say you, now I'll just make up a scenario. You're at the Uh, lunch table in high school, and in walks so-and-so. And you can't think, you can't continue eating, um, you can't see straight, and all of this activity starts happening somatically in the body. And you're not in control of it. If you were in control of it, you know, it's called falling in love, not like doing the algebra, you know, like... Imagine if that was the phrase, yeah, just, just doing the algebra with my partner, you know, just kind of this plus this equals, oh, you got a little of this, you know, it doesn't work that way. It's like you just fall, you fall down, you fall into it, you, you're overcome with something. And what James Hollis says is on one level, part of what's happening is that you're trying to return to paradise, okay, to the place where the masculine and feminine were one. 
to the paradisal realm where all your needs are met. All right? Because I don't know what it was like growing up for you, um, but probably not all your, me- your needs were met as a child. Surely somewhere you were disappointed by someone, correct? Probably some parent, I don't care how good they were, didn't meet all of your needs. It wasn't actually paradise. And for some of you, it was obviously not paradise. So what begins to happen is this wakes up in us that, oh, what if this person is the paradise that I never experienced? And what would that paradise feel like? Well, it would feel like going back to the womb, having all my needs met, being hooked up to the umbilical cord where I don't have to do anything, and this person will meet all my needs. And in addition, they will um, always listen, always be trustworthy, never lie. Um, They'll be uh, very rational and also emotionally available. And whatever else your list is, and take you back to Eden, take you back to the womb. Now, obviously what he's describing is completely unconscious. You don't say that to someone. Hey, you're down at the lunch table, in they walk, you feel that special feeling, you say, would you take me back to the womb? You know, it's it's not going to really, it's not going to go over that well, all right? In other words, will you be my mommy, okay? It's like, ugh. Will you be my daddy? It just doesn't feel, you know, it doesn't have the same ring, you know. It's not in any of the Shakespearean sonnets, you know. It's like, but that is a dimension of what's happening. That's what he's trying to argue. And it's, it's poking around in the terrain of the masculine and feminine and our relationship with the masculine and feminine and areas that we feel incomplete. This is why, what's that Jerry Maguire? You complete me. Yeah, it's a complete lie, but... It's a real feeling that I'm going to go back to Eden. All of Hollywood is based on this fantasy, all right? Every single pop song is based on this fantasy, that this person will take me back to Eden. And after six weeks, you conclude, wrong address, okay? Wrong Eden, all right? And that's just part of the dynamic. That's part of the tension. That's part of what helps us wake back up. It's actually, interestingly enough, a tremendous opportunity to say, what am I longing for? What am I looking for? And, and, and really beginning to own back some of these things. So the other phrase that he uses is the magical other, that what ends up being created is a kind of magical other that lives down just beneath the ego, but in the psyche, in the unconscious. And what we're constantly doing, and unaware of it, is comparing everyone we meet to this magical person that's going to walk in and meet all my needs and save me and fix me and complete me and make me healthy and all that kind of... And we're just going around comparing, like, is this the magical other? How, how well do you compare over here? How well do you compare over here? And instead of being against this kind of thing, like, if I tell it to you, um, it's not like you can do anything about it. You're like, well, I'm just not going to do that anymore, okay? Next time I meet someone, I'll just, you know, won't do it. It doesn't really seem to work that way. It's more like an opportunity begins to awaken. 
and we begin to wonder things like, all right, um, if this person uh, is evoking certain kinds of things in me, what is also being asked? What is, what, what, what is being asked? What am I being asked to integrate or to look at instead of just letting that other person um, fulfill all your incompleteness? So I'll give you some like sort of cliche examples to sort of bring it, uh, bring it home here, bring it front and center. Okay, so how might this work? Let's say you're a relatively introverted person. Okay, raise your hand if you're introverted. That's a joke. <laughs> so if you raise your hand, you get, yeah, probably not. Okay, so um, let's say you're a relatively introverted person, and your definition of a nightmare would be a party. Okay, but in walks that special so-and-so one day, and guess what? They're extroverted. And they're pretty good at talking to other people. And they're pretty good at small talk. You can't, you, you, I mean, you would die if you had to do small talk. But this person's relatively good at it. And at least for a while, you like to be around this kind of energy. In fact, you like to go to the parties with this person. Now, what's happening, so that's what's happening on the surface. Now we'll take a look at what's happening in the basement. So the psyche is complex, and everyone has extroversion and introversion to certain degrees, just like everyone has masculine and feminine. And what's happening is that your own extroversion could use a little attention, but for the time being, you get to be near it or close to it being fulfilled in this other person. Make sense? So... For the first six weeks, it's freaking awesome. You're going, you're mingling, you're getting dressed up, you're feeling good, like I'm out in public. And then all of a sudden, all those qualities about being able to mingle and be external and go here and go there start to irritate you. You're like, God, this person is annoying. They just will not shut up, you know? And well, what happened, you know? Well, what happened is, it's that projection is really what it is, is remaining in that externalized place. And probably, not that you're, you can always do this, but if you're able to integrate a bit of your own, not that you're going to be extroverted in the way your partner is extroverted, but you're going to take some responsibility for the way that you're relating to the world, then the projection dissipates a little bit. The other person doesn't have to carry it. Same with the other way around. We could switch the whole thing with, let's say you're an extrovert, and you fall in love with an introvert. And what you're falling in love with is like, you cannot believe this person can talk about their internal landscape and their feelings. You're like, this person has feelings. And you, you love to be near it. And you just can't believe the way they can explore all these inner terrain. You know? And then after a while, that thing drives you crazy. Quit talking about all the inside stuff. You know? Let's go to the park. You know? Let's go out. So it's that tension between... That's the way projection works, and that's part of the magical other. We think, finally, I'm meeting in this person something that will complete me, and the psychological invitation is, what is waking up that needs your own attention? How can I take on a little bit, in my own way, these other dimensions? So here's a, here's a fun exercise to do. Make a list of every single person that you've fallen in love with. All right? 
could be like a list of two or ten. I'm not judging. Or many more. Who knows? But I mean, not just like you kind of like them, but at least for a moment in time, even if you hate them now, and especially if you hate them now, what was it about that fiery exchange? And imagine them to be at least a version of your magical other. So make a list. Here they are. Here's the list. And list next to it their positive qualities. And be as clear as you can. The thing I really loved about them is they were good at fill in the blank. And do the same with their negative qualities. The thing I actually hated about them was, and just make no judgments, just here's the list. And then begin to ask yourself, once that list is complete, is this pointing toward my own version of the magical other? Is something like a pattern emerging? I know this has never happened to you, but you probably have a friend who fell in love or got married or something like that, and that relationship didn't work out, and they turned around and married somebody, what? Just like, and they said, I swear to God, I'll never do that again. And then they're like, well, I guess I did it again. So that is just a cliche example of getting at the sort of thing I'm describing, the pattern. Why are you attracted to certain things in certain people? Why does that attraction also have a repulsive quality to it at certain moments? And you're getting a little closer to what James Hollis is calling about uh, around the magical other. That this person somehow activates these repressed qualities that I have a hard time accessing. And why do you have a hard time accessing? Because of this poem. In the innocence of your childhood, when things were just developing, some of this stuff went underground. It wasn't, you weren't allowed to be your natural self to a certain extent. It was unsafe to do so. You had to draw certain conclusions about who was safe and who was unsafe, what kind of energies were safe and what kind of energies were unsafe. And they've stayed down there in the basement a long time. And the beautiful thing about falling in love is that not only is the possibility that you might meet somebody interesting, but because it's going to take you back to the scene of the crime, back to childhood, back to these opportunities, back to a kind of project that involves accessing more of your wholeness. Have I made sense, at least theoretically? Theoretically, it's easier than actually doing it. (laughs) But that's sort of some of the terrain around the masculine and feminine that I think is important. Um, So Jung calls one dimension, and I'll kind of end with this. Jung calls um, the, the sort of opposite energy, either masculine or feminine, it depends on the person, as the animus and the anima. Those are, maybe you've heard those Jungian terms before, the animus and the anima. It's the, so the opposite, either masculine and feminine energy. And, and usually, um, not only the people are we, we're attracted to, the anima, have an animus and anima quality, but also the kinds of things that we read and the kinds of movies that we like and the kind of heroes or heroines that we're attracted to have these sort of animus and animus animal qualities, and they, and they pull out of us a bit of our own depths. That's why we like to be around them. So here's an example from, um, maybe I'll just end a little bit with a myth. Last week, just briefly, I talked about the Fisher King myth, and then I mentioned the Handless Maiden. I want to say something more about the Fisher King myth, just to see, um, so you can see how some of the things I'm describing come out in story form. So, The story begins with 
Parsifal as a young man. And one day, Parsifal is out. He lives with his mother. His father is dead. He's not he's gone. He um, was killed, actually. And so he's out one day, and he sees some knights come into the field, something like that. You know, knights as in, like, Monty Python with the, <laughs> yeah, that kind of knight. Um, and something in him wakes up, and he says, ooh, who are these people? I didn't know they existed. And some part of him says, I want to be that. And he goes home and tells his mom, I want to be a knight. And what she say? No. <laughs> no way! Your father was a knight and he was killed. So that's that, I talked about that last week, but that the devouring mother energy. No way, don't go near it, stay home, stay my little boy, don't go out into the world, I'm going to keep you safe. But he won't, it doesn't really work. So they make a deal, and she says, okay, you can go out and wander and look for the knights, but don't ask too many questions and wear this underwear that I made for you. <laughs> That's my favorite part. <laughs> so out into the world he goes wearing his mother's underwear, you know, going to be the hero. And, and he starts this big journey. And almost right away, he meets the Fisher King. And the Fisher King is wounded. He has this festering wound. And uh, the, the Fisher King invites Parsifal into the um, castle, shows him the Holy Grail. And Parsifal forgets to ask the question, which is, whom does the Grail serve? Because he's trying to obey his mother. And so he can't access the Grail, and he gets kicked out of the, um, the castle. Now the real journey begins. He's had a glimpse of what's possible, the grail, ultimate reality, you could say, but he's not old enough to integrate it, and he has to, like, wander around more. Now, here's where the anima and the animus come into play, the masculine and feminine. He meets, in French, um, the white flower, and this becomes for him his muse, his anima, the person he falls in love with, and it propels him further on the journey. And they strike up a deal. It's kind of this, um, um, now it has a special phrase, a certain kind of love, like um, courtly love. Courtly love. It has a, a courtly love dimension where they decide not to consummate the marriage. And by maintaining the poles, it drives him further onto the journey. He actually has other girlfriends along the way. Parsifal does. But they don't really work out and other things happen. Meanwhile... His version of the magical other is looming all the time, pulling him, calling to him. Like, what are you drawn to? What are you attracted to? Um, where does your own creativity reside? What if I started listening to this voice? And it propels him further and further on the journey until he's able to return to the castle again later in life to begin to ask the right kinds of questions. Now, I don't have enough time to go into tremendous detail because I'm looking at the clock about this particular myth. But what I would like to say is this. I think it's important, no matter what your age is, no matter how many relationships that you've been in, to ask questions about what really calls to me, pulls me forward, speaks to me, awakens my own deeper desires, for life and for, for vitality, for meaning. In mythic form, that's the white flower. That's the animus. That's the anima. That's that unobtainable other that hovers around. 
And how might my conscious awareness of what's pulling me help awaken me into my own fullness? When that gets too fixated on a person, then you're in troubling waters. That person will fix me. But it's much more subtle. It's like that person helps awaken these capacities that are latent in my own psyche. And if I give them attention and at least try to take a few metabolizing bites of my own masculinity, my own femininity, my own counterpole, my own animus, my own anima, I become a more healthy and whole human being. And then I can look at that other and see the other as really an other instead of just the object of my projections. Have I made sense? Okay. You didn't look too convinced. Well, I'm not feeling a part three, but I'm feeling, I'm feeling part two. We'll see how talkback goes. Thanks for listening.